Welcome to Love Yourself So Matcha, the podcast where we get up close and personal with mental health issues. In each episode, you will learn more about eating disorders, body image, self-love, and appreciating yourself. I'm Cindy. And I'm Lily. And we hope that you will join us on our journey to loving ourselves so matcha. Hi, future Lily here. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that Dr. Stice is currently doing some really amazing research on risk factors for onset of eating disorders in adolescent girls. He is actively recruiting participants from the Bay Area who are girls between the ages of 13 and 15. If you know anyone that meets this criteria, please visit teenhealthstudy.weebly.com for more information or contact study coordinator Laura Rubino at her email, teenhealthstudy at stanford.edu. Dr. Stice talks more about this groundbreaking study later on in the episode, so stay tuned. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to episode 9 of the Love Yourself So Matcha podcast. For today's episode, we're pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Eric Stice, who will be discussing his work with identifying risk factors for eating disorders and designing and evaluating treatment interventions to prevent them. Good afternoon, Dr. Stice. Welcome to our podcast. Before we start, would you mind telling us who you are and what your role is at Stanford? Yeah, um, I'm a clinical psychologist who works in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University. I've been uh, conducting research on risk factors for eating disorders and body image concerns and designing prevention programs and treatment interventions for those uh, mental health issues. So from your research, I know you have a very long um, CV that is extremely impressive. What have been your most significant findings? I think the, the findings that I'm most excited about is that we had explored um, four different ideas to prevent eating disorders. And one of them really turned out to work very well. And we've been really excited to develop a, a brief prevention program that uh, on average and across three different trials has produced about a 62% reduction in future onset of eating disorders over two to four year follow-up. Uh, that is an effect I never dreamed that we'd be able to pull off. So I'm quite excited about that. And I've been equally excited about how um, people around the world have been quite uh, interested in implementing this, uh, this prevention program very broadly. Uh, for instance, we just uh, trained 40 clinicians at every uh, university throughout all of Ireland over the last couple of months so they can do a national implementation effort for this prevention program. That's great. Could you go into a little bit more about the prevention program? How does it work and can everyone kind of receive access to it if they want to? Yeah, the, we've uh, conducted um, over the last 25 years, conducted several prospective studies that were designed to identify risk factors that predict future onset of eating disorders. And that program of research has revealed that pursuit of the thin appearance ideal promoted by our culture results in body dissatisfaction, which results in dieting and negative mood, both of which increase risk for future onset of eating disorders. Those variables account for about 80% of the variance in future onset of eating disorders. And fortuitously, this means that if we turn down pursuit of the thin ideal, uh, help young women talk themselves out of pursuing the thin ideal, it does a wonderful job in reducing body dissatisfaction, unhealthy dieting, yo-yo dieting, and uh, eating disorder symptoms, as well as future onset of eating disorders. And it's really, I think, powerful. Uh, two, two particular findings are quite interesting regarding this intervention. 
and were a bit of a surprise. The first is that this intervention only prevents eating disorders if peer educators who are about the same age as the participants in the group deliver the intervention. Uh, when old you know, people like myself deliver the intervention, it actually doesn't uh, prevent future onset of eating disorders unless I have a co-facilitator in the room with me who's the same age as the participants in the study. And I think that's really conveying that eating disorders are a product of, of our microcultures in which we live uh, that are very focused on appearance and, and have very narrow uh, beauty standards. Th these standards aren't uh, exactly the same for every race, soul, and ethnic group, but they are equally narrow and hard to achieve for, for most groups. So, so what we do essentially is, is, is convene groups of young women um, with body image concerns, high school age youth, and college students primarily, and give them an opportunity to discuss the appearance ideal, the cost of pursuing that ideal, and just really go through a series of exercises where they essentially talk themselves out of that. And once you uh, reduce pursuit of that ideal, uh, onset of eating disorders will drop up, be reduced by up to 77% in the best studies uh, that we've done to date. Uh, you'd ask about access. Um, so at this point in time, uh, the body project is being implemented at about 250 universities throughout the United States and in several other countries. Uh, we had worked with Dove uh, Body Esteem Program to implement a variant of the, the body project to about 6 million girls in 139 countries over the years. That's the Freebie Me program, uh, which is still ongoing. So there are uh, some ways for people to access it, but what where we've really not um, made some progress is we haven't really figured out how to reach high school age students. So we're really hoping that we can uh, come up with a, a better way of reaching high school age students with body the body project because most eating disorders the highest risk period of onset of eating disorders is late adolescence. So ideally, we'd want to do the prevention program with high school students instead of with college students who are already kind of past the highest risk of onset of eating disorders. And just out of curiosity, what do you define as a high risk group? What groups have you found to be high risk? Does it matter by environment, by either dancers or figure skaters? Cindy and I are both uh, dancers and figure skaters. Um, and we've found that our communities are heavily impacted by eating disorders. Um, so yeah, so the, the, there, there are a whole bunch of, of at-risk groups. Uh, certainly people who are in uh, sports or pursuits where there's a, a high appearance focus, such as dancers, um, divers, um, gymnasts, uh, they definitely experience much greater pressures to uh, conform to the thin ideal. Um, we typically just focus on uh, adolescent girls and young women with body image concerns. Just, you know, that is enough. Um, about 60% of, of young women uh, endorse body image concerns. So it's a really big risk group and they're uniquely motivated. We, we market the body project as a body acceptance intervention because it really it does produce really good improvements in body acceptance and satisfaction. Um, and that's actually, I think, been one of the real benefits of it. We don't say, hey, this is an eating disorder prevention program. We say it's a body acceptance prevention program or a body acceptance program. And that uh, results in people being much more interested in signing up. Is this just for a specific type of eating disorder, for anorexia, for bulimia, or for binge eating disorder, or does it kind of encompass everything? 
Well, so far, uh, you know, eating disorders are relatively rare, and it's hard to do a study where you power it to be able to detect whether it reduces onset of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. So all our studies have been focused on reducing onset of any eating disorder, although we did recently do, we're just in the process of doing a study where we melded uh, data from four different trials together so that we can see if it prevents onset of each of the eating disorders. It's the, bat, it's the most effective at preventing onset of bulimia nervosa, which is uh, eating disorder characterized by uh, recurrent episodes of, of binge eating or overeating uh, punctuated by unhealthy weight control behaviors. Um, it's, it's the best for that. Um, we, we do get about a 25% reduction in onset of anorexia nervosa, which is uh, reassuring as well, but it's um, definitely, I think there's more to learn about how to effectively prevent onset of anorexia nervosa. Um, and we don't get very good effects for preventing onset of binge eating disorder for this trial, which we didn't know about until about two weeks ago. So we're just kind of putting our heads together around that. Um, but one good bit of information is we have been able to determine that the body project produces positive effects for uh, people of any racial or ethnic group that we've studied in our, our studies. So that includes uh, African-American, uh, Asian-American, Hispanic, uh, as well as white individuals, and even uh, Native Americans, we've gotten a good signal. Um, they're um, not, not as re well represented in our studies. So it was, uh, we had limited sensitivity for that. Um, but it's really uh, encouraging. We really feel like it's important to kind of create interventions that work for everybody instead of just some people. Um, and we've actually found that the Body Project produces effects in uh, 12 different countries, all 12 of the countries in which we've evaluated it, which range from uh, Japan and China, which have a, a very different culture in Western culture. So it really does suggest that, uh, you know, the appearance pressures for the thin ideal are a pretty ubiquitous uh, kind of pressure for, for young people around the world. It's not just constrained to Western cultures. You're talking a lot about how the Body Project has been focusing on eating disorder prevention. Um, I was wondering if you guys have been doing any research on the recovery process and um, if you found any interesting research about that. Yeah, we, we also uh, do work on uh, treatment of eating disorders and have evaluated a, a treatment uh, intervention that is very similar, a, a close, close cousin to the body project. It, um, what we found with that, and we're using brain imaging to kind of look at kind of what factors maintain eating disorders and what we need to kind of turn down to get good uh, resolution of eating disorders. And it's really a pursuit of the thin ideal and overvaluation of weight and shape. Uh, that, that predict persistence of eating disorders. Interestingly, what gets people into eating disorders typically is that they engage in unhealthy weight control behaviors, and that kind of starts the whole thing. So if you think about it, eating disorders emerge because people are trying to avoid obesity. So it's a strange collision of two public health problems, a mental health problem and a, a physical health problem that, that seems to be giving rise to this. And I think we need to kind of acknowledge that we do live in a, an obesogenic environment where we have a whole bunch of energy dense foods and people are finding it harder and harder to, to maintain a, a healthy body weight within that context. So we're appreciating that more and more that that backdrop is creating uh, a fertile environment for the development of eating disorders. But yeah, so going back to the, the factor, you know, what factors predict resolution of eating disorders or remission, uh, it's basically when people are able to kind of 
reduce overvaluation of the appearance and, and pursuit of the thin ideal, have a, a much more relaxed uh, attitude towards or relationship with food, and, and they can eat kind of freely without being too uptight about it. Um, that seems to make a world of difference. Um, there are some other maintenance factors for eating disorders, such as uh, elevated negative uh, mood or, or negative affect. But I, I should say that you know, one of the things that we've learned is it's really critical to conduct good basic science to figure out what causes eating disorders or mental health problems. We've made some pretty good inroads. Uh, the field has made some pretty good inroads over the last two decades, but there's really huge gaps in our knowledge. Um, for instance, there's only been one prospective study that's been able to predict onset of anorexia nervosa. This is a disorder that has been around, recognized for 300 years, and there's, we've only managed to conduct one prospective study to figure out what risk factors cause anorexia nervosa. And I, we're really trying hard to kind of wrap our head around the etiologic processes that give rise to anorexia nervosa. Um, it may be really similar to bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder, but the risk factors for the disorders appear to be a little bit different, but it's, it's I think, a, a really critical thing because I think what we've learned is good basic science has allowed us to develop effective prevention programs. And we're now able to kind of give those away and scale those up. Uh, the, the intervention uh, script for the Body Project parenthetically is on the Body Project facilitator support webpage. You can just Google and download for free. So we're just trying to give it away. But I think there's a clear need for additional basic science on the risk factors that give rise to anorexia nervosa in particular, because we really don't understand what we need to do to, to prevent that disorder most effectively. And it is the most lethal, uh, one of the most lethal psychiatric disorders in about one in every 10 um, patients with anorexia nervosa that's, that are hospitalized will, will perish prematurely because of that disorder. So it's a really quite lethal uh, problem that we should come up with better prevention programs for. Absolutely. I'm sure we've, anyone who's experienced it has felt the physical ramifications, especially from that. Um, and actually, you touched on the basic science of risk factors and risk factors for onset of anorexia, for example, and the little concrete science that has been researched. I was curious because I feel like I don't know too much about this topic as well. Um, what are your thoughts on risk factors as maybe a neurological inherent um, trait that somebody may have that causes them to be more likely to be prone to eating disorders? Well, certainly uh, nearly anything that affects human beings, people can make a pretty compelling argument that's all driven by genetics, but that doesn't give us a, a lot of purchase in terms of developing more effective prevention programs and treatment treatments at this point in time. But what we're essentially learning, again, this kind of the, the field more broadly, is that a lot of the variables that we've talked about in terms of pursuit of the thin ideal, body dissatisfaction, uh, unhealthy dieting, we see uh, neural vulnerability factors that, that basically map right onto that. So um, when we show young women with body image concerns, images of the thin ideal, it activates reward circuitry in our brains. Uh, so we really value that elevated uh, valuation of the thin ideal in terms of activation and reward circuitry predicts maintenance of eating disorders. Um, prevention programs that work like the body project 
reduces this. We've used brain imaging to confirm that if you go through the body project, it reduces how much your reward circuitry responds to the thin ideal. You don't even allocate as much attention to it. Your attention circuitry becomes less hypervigilant to the thin ideal. So I think there's a really nice mapping on of the constructs that we've been talking about and the neuroscience. It's really reassuring that we're seeing the, the neuroscience findings really are, are mapping on to what we've learned in terms of cognitive vulnerability factors. So essentially what we're learning that is that there is a, a genetic factor that increases risk for onset of eating disorders. It's conveyed by uh, individual differences in how our brains respond to thin stimuli. You know, as we watch television, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of images of thin, attractive models that are paired with anything that anybody's selling. So it's, it, we're just bombarded with these images and we just basically learned that our culture really values thinness. And uh, if you attain that, you get all sorts of benefits. So it's, it's no wonder about why we have, uh, you know, 13% of young women will experience an eating disorder. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so what is next for you? And I guess what is also next for the body project? Um, do you guys have any exciting projects that are coming up in the near future? Um, yeah, we are. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do, kind of circling back to the, the basic science about risk factors for anorexia nervosa, is we've just begun to launch a study where we're recruiting healthy adolescent girls that have a parental history of anorexia healthy adolescent girls with parental history of bulimia and healthy adolescent girls with no parental history of eating pathology to look at kind of the baseline uh, neural vulnerability factors that differentiate these groups to see if we can identify um, what are the factors that really kind of are unique for anorexia nervosa versus bulimia nervosa. In, and one of the reasons why this is important is a lot of the risk factors that we've talked about don't actually predict the onset of anorexia nervosa. So pursuit of the thin ideal, body dissatisfaction, dieting doesn't predict anorexia nervosa, even though it's a disorder characterized by extremely successful dieting. So it seems like a, a very big puzzle that we need to kind of resolve. Ironically, um, you know, all those variables predict all the other eating disorders really well, but I really feel like there's a, a, a gap in our knowledge with anorexia nervosa. Um, the other, one of the other things that we're really excited about doing is beginning to partner with schools to try to implement um, the body project at the high school level. Um, we'd love to figure out a way to kind of reach adolescents at a developmental time that's previous to when they show onset of anorexia or you know, eating disorders so that we get the most effective uh, intervention effects. Um, but you know, if you think about it, <clears throat> I didn't prepare the math here, but you know, if there's something like 2 million adolescent girls or young women in America, of which 13% will have an eating disorder, if we could reduce that by 77%, that translates into thousands and thousands of fewer cases of destroyed, you know, disturbed or disruptive lives. Um, and I, I just get really excited about that. As a, as a parent, I really resonate with the idea of preventing the mental health problem as opposed to trying to help somebody get out of it once it's uh, emerged and often becomes very ingrained. Uh, a, a very uh, close friend of mine um, has a daughter who currently has anorexia nervosa and she's just entering her third inpatient treatment to, to deal with anorexia nervosa. And unfortunately is just not responding well at all. And 
really just kind of communicates to me that if we can prevent these uh, really serious and pernicious disorders, it's so much better of a solution. Uh, and, and I just hope that we can embrace that. Uh, in America, we do all sorts of things that are really smart and clever. And I think really embracing and getting behind prevention is one of those things that I'd love to see us uh, embrace a little bit more fervently. I remember when Lily and I were preparing episodes for the podcast, I remember coming across something where anorexia patients don't know they have an eating disorder versus like bulimia patients kind of are aware of it. Like they're kind of aware that that they're going through something and that they kind of have an issue. I was wondering if that maybe plays a part in how it's slightly more difficult to kind of approach anorexia patients. I personally had anorexia a couple years ago. And when I was when I had it I honestly didn't really think that something was wrong with me I thought it was just a natural process so I was wondering if that kind of has an effect on like prevention and recovery right yeah the, you know there's two ways of thinking about that one is whether it's egocentric or dystonic so people who have anorexia nervosa are happy because it's helping them kind of get closer to the appearance ideal promoted by our culture Whereas people with bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder, they're being pulled away from that. Um, so in a sense, people are a lot more emotionally distressed about bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. And a lot of times people do kind of coexist with anorexia nervosa for years. Um, and it can show a very chronic course. Uh, and I think it's because it's not the same, you know, like if you feel depressed, nobody really wants to feel depressed. So they, uh, people seek treatment. Um, and that it's actually really important because even though what you said, I think is actually absolutely correct. 80% of people with an eating disorder, any type of eating disorder, never receive treatment. So right now the system is not really doing a good job of providing treatment to everybody in need. There's a, a myriad of, of explanations for that. Um, it's extremely expensive to be treated, have an eating disorder treated, uh, inpatient, um, it can, can easily cost several hundred thousand dollars uh, over the course of a long inpatient stay. There, there's other things that are going on there, but yeah, it's. Um, I think a, a big factor of that is the egocentric nature of anorexia nervosa and the case that um, a lot of times when you have anorexia nervosa, you still perceive that you're not as thin as you want to be. So you're you're still kind of pushing and kind of pursuing that that ideal. But so so I think you know really getting. Um, Increasing our ability to offer treatment to a lot more people is another really big agenda uh, for us. You know, we've created a, a really inexpensive treatment that's one twentieth the cost of current treatments of choice, and is more effective. And we're hoping we'll be able to roll that out uh, more broadly. But it's yeah, it's uh, I think you bring up a, a really valid point that the insight is often limited with anorexia nervosa, and I think that's part and parcel of the the disorder that you you really have such powerful cognitive um, maintenance factors in terms of overvaluation of appearance and pursuit of the thin beauty ideal that you just really kind of don't even notice the fact that your mensa stops and, and other things are occurring to the body. So it's, it's really profound. Actually, I love that we brought this topic up because I'm also like Cindy, I didn't really want to get treatment for anorexia because it was closer to how I thought I should look or how I thought I wanted to look at the time. Mm -hmm. But even now, like occasionally I'll sort of relapse into that way of thinking. 
of, oh, I wish I was in that mindset because I like the way that I looked at that time. Um, and it doesn't happen very often now, but it does happen. So I'm, I'm really curious, do you have any hypothesis on why anorexia is so different from other eating disorders and why there is less data on how it can be prevented and how it can be treated? And I remember, I, I forgot, sorry, who it was. Um, you said one of your or somebody you knew, sorry, um, their daughter wasn't responding very well to anorexia. Oh, yeah, yeah, just a colleague here, just a friend of mine. Yeah, um, why do you think that is? Why, why is it so different and so difficult to understand? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's hard to study because it affects around 1% of young women. And to do a big prospective study to predict the onset of a rare condition like that, we've only been able to do it when we take and assemble data sets uh, you know, the, the first study where we were able to actually predict onset of anorexia nervosa, there's just now two studies. Um, one is currently in press, a paper, but the, the first one, we had to put together data from three different five-year, $4 million studies to have enough sensitivity to detect the onset of anorexia nervosa. So it's a really, really hard, you know, some low base rate conditions are very, very hard to study and understand, but we've subsequently found out, and this is the, a really bizarre puzzle, that the best predictor of future onset of anorexia nervosa is just being in the lowest 25% of the BMI distribution. If you happen to be a very skinny person, you're much more likely to develop anorexia nervosa. So we're thinking that there's some fundamental processes going on that could be the gut microbiome uh, that makes pe people uh, makes eating more uncomfortable or something like that. Um, uh, another coll colleague of mine who's suffering from a really severe case of acid reflux lost 18 pounds in two weeks. Uh, I just learned last night. So, you know, disturbances in your gut microbiome can really affect uh, kind of your inclination to eat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that might be the driver. Uh, it might just be profound fear of, of weight. You know, we have a very negative uh, view towards obesity in our culture. Um, it's even though 70% of us are overweight or obese in America at this point in time, we just uh, have a very negative perception towards it. And interestingly, we're just working on a study that we did, collected data in Israel and uh, the United States. And we found that even uh, people who are congenitally blind, like people who've never been able to see, totally value the thin ideal. Somehow they've determined that the, the thin ideal is the, the best thing on the planet and they totally have a, a positive attitude towards it, even though they can't even perceive it with their own eyeballs, which just, I, to me, really communicates how profound uh, kind of our, our preoccupation with appearance is and, and how deeply affected we are by it, that even people who can't see the thin ideal are pursuing it um, and have negative attitudes towards overweight individuals. The, the other thing I wanted to kind of share that I thought was really interesting is we, we've been very interested in what risk factors predict other risk factors. So it's a, sort of a complex thing, but rarely do mental health problems, uh, are they caused by just one simple variable? But one of the things that we did find is low psychosocial functioning. So like not getting along well with your peers at school, with your parents, with your friends, that is also a really potent risk factor for anorexia nervosa, and it predicts future onset of pursuit of the thin ideal. So I think what's happening is that some people aren't really 
the most popular and, and, and central people to social networks in, in middle schools and high schools, and they begin to pursue the thin ideals so that they can gain greater social acceptance. And I think that's a, a really important finding because if we can help you connect better with each other and support each other better, that should also be a very powerful way of reducing onset of eating disorders. That's not been pursued, but I think it's a very positive future direction that we should we should try out. Yeah, I I love hearing about the science of eating disorders because I think it's often seen as such a subjective, and it is. I think I think it is very individual to every person and their experiences. But I find that I kind of see we we've talked to um, a lot of people on this podcast, and a lot of them being former eating disorder victims or people who either work with eating disorders in some capacity or work around people who have eating disorders. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like the common consensus is one of the factors that causes them, or maybe it, you can predict it with them, is a lack of control or something that affects them very severely in their life. I don't know if that's something you've experienced too, but for me, it was kind of a lack of control over anything in life. And then, like you said, very tense relationships or not being accepted in certain situations and that kind of forcing people into this mindset and pursuit of a thin ideal that they sometimes maybe may or may not even realize they're pursuing. Right. And there, and we really just need to, you know, invest more money in figuring out what are the causal factors. Uh, ironically, you know, I've done a whole bunch of reviews of all the prospective studies out there and deficits in control have never, ever been supported as a risk factor for eating disorders. That was a, a theory that was uh, launched by Hilda Bruch, uh, uh, I think an early writer um, that proposed that idea from her work with clinical patients. I don't think anybody's ever found support for that. And I'm not saying it's incorrect. I'm just saying that um, there is a myriad of risk factors that people have kind of said, oh, these are what cause eating disorders. And so far, a lot of those factors, such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, other trauma, those are general things that are elevated in people with any mental health problem. But I don't think there's evidence that it predicts future onset of eating disorders. Because I really, yeah, I think a pile of studies have looked at those questions and, and haven't supported that. But it, it really kind of goes to just really remind us that we should be quite humble about thinking that we understand what causes mental health problems. Um, and really try to use good science, because I think uh, science has proven to be a, just a fantastic tool for helping us figure out a whole bunch of things that we didn't understand before, and we just got to apply the best possible science going forward, and I think we'll have much more effective and uh, acceptable prevention programs and treatments, and I think we have the potential to really reduce population, population prevalence of eating disorders if we're really diligent about applying that, that science well. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of good science and future research on the topic and future investment into it, um, you mentioned a prospective study that studies risk factors for onset of anorexia nervosa. What are your plans for that? And how can people get involved if they want to help? Yeah, we're, we're currently recruiting uh, healthy adolescent girls with parental history of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or no parental history um, in the Bay Area. It, it does involve brain imaging, and uh, we're assessing the gut microbiome. 
Um, so kind of the gut microbiota. Um, so yeah, people are excited about that, uh, you know, reaching out and contacting us at Stanford University. Uh, Laura Rubino is the study coordinator for that project. So reaching out to her would be best. And she's been just a fantastic study coordinator and is really just doing a wonderful job recruiting this. It's a really rare sample, but I mean, if you think about it, if the field's not been able to figure out what causes eating disorders because it's so hard to have a sample where you have enough cases who show onset of anorexia nervosa, uh, a study like we're trying to conduct is even harder because we're trying to find youth of parents who are already affected by these eating disorders who are healthy still so that we can capture the development of eating disorders. Uh, individuals with coronal history are about three to four times more likely to experience an eating disorder, which is, I think, one of the main reasons why people think there, there must be some genetic factors that, that kind of increase risk for onset of eating disorders. Dr. Stice and his team are doing some truly groundbreaking work, and like he said, they are currently recruiting participants for this newest study on risk factors for onset of eating disorders in adolescent girls. So if you know someone residing in the Bay Area who is or has a daughter between the ages of 13 to 15, please have a parent get in contact with Dr. Stice's team. You can learn more at teenhealthstudy.weebly.com or contact study coordinator Laura Rubino at our email teenhealthstudy at stanford.edu. We'll include all of this information in our podcast description, as well as several other resources for you to get in touch. We really hope you will consider being a part of this study, and we thank you so much for contributing to such a great cause. Thank you so much, Dr. Stice, for speaking with us today and providing us with so much valuable insight on eating disorder risk factors and how the Body Project is helping prevent teens from developing an eating disorder. We really hope you learned something from listening to our conversation with Dr. Eric Stice today. And make sure to check out the links that we've included in the podcast description for more information on how you can reach out to learn more about the Body Project and possibly even contribute to the Body Project. Thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone loves themselves so much and more after this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode. Updates will be posted on our Instagram and Facebook. Both handles are at loveyourselfsomatra. Also make sure to check out our website, which will be linked in our bios. Bye.